0: I'll go home as a beggar and never be your wife. Hi, I'm Mary. And I'm Katie. And this is The Housewife Did It. True Crime Edition. Part one. Part one. Yeah, we have another multi-parter. Should, it's just two parts. So this is part one. And do you have any real-time true crime before we start? Okay, me either. All right, I'm gonna just to get into about that. <laughs> On August 20th, 1989, police received a call that a Hollywood executive and his former beauty queen wife had been shot to death inside of their $5 million Beverly Hills mansion that was previously owned by Elton John. Jose and Kitty Menendez had been shot beyond recognition With six shots to Jose nearly decapitating him and 10 shots to Kitty. When their two sons, Lyle and Eric, returned home that evening, they smelled smoke in the air and then found their parents' bodies. The affluent community started getting nervous after these murders, especially those who worked closely with Jose Menendez, fearing that this was somehow connected to the mob. Before I continue, a content warning for child abuse child sexual abuse and themes of suicide i promise my next case i'm deviating from the child sexual abuse i don't know why i did this to myself and and to you lovely folks i'm sorry (laughs) my next case is like survivor awesomeness so nice we need some awesomeness Uh, Jose Menendez was a Cuban immigrant who originally came to the U.S. at the age of 16. While in college at Southern Illinois University, Jose met Kitty Anderson. He married Kitty, whose legal name was Mary Louise, when he was 19. The two moved to California, and he became a self-made millionaire, starting at a record company, building up their Latin music line, and then moving to an independent film company. At first, Kitty was an elementary school teacher, but after having her two sons, she became a stay at home mom. People described them as very strict parents to Lyle and Eric. Jose wanted the boys to be successful at tennis, get into Ivy League schools, and start successful businesses. Lyle and Eric were 21 and 19, respectively, at the time of their parents' murders. Lyle was a student at Princeton University, but had been suspended for plagiarism. Jose had flown to Princeton immediately to argue on his son's behalf that the punishment did not fit the crime. However, the school remained firm that he could return the following year, but for now, suspended. During Lyle's time away from Princeton, back at home with his brother, the two began breaking into homes around Calabasas The amount stolen totaled over $100,000, which is enough for a felony charge. But Jose was able to use his connections and money to help the boys avoid any jail time. He paid off, so they returned what they could, and then he paid off the remaining amount that was not able to be returned. Eric was competing in tennis tournaments and waiting to begin school at UCLA in the fall allegedly after finding out that lyle had gotten a girl pregnant back at princeton jose went to visit her and paid her a large sum of money to have an abortion on top of this lyle was now once again in trouble with the school and he was facing academic and disciplinary probation at what point do we just say no thank you yeah you don't come back please ever Jose and Kitty told the boys that they were being written out of their wills entirely. I don't know what that had to do with Eric. Eric didn't get anyone pregnant or get kicked out of school. He said, "I'm just ni- I'm just a 19-year-old baby. Please. Breaking into homes. <laughs> All I did was rack up a felony charge." <laughs> On August 20th, after finding their parents dead inside their home, the boys called 911, sobbing, screaming, someone killed my parents. Given Jose Menendez's status and the size of the home, investigators worried that the intruders were still inside the mansion when they arrived. The boys had noticed that the driveway gate was open when they got home, and this was unusual, but not enough for them to not go inside. They had parked on the street because they were planning to go right back out. They were stopping to get Eric's fake ID so that they could go to the cheesecake factory with a friend and he could get alcoholic beverages. At the cheesecake Get it. <laughs> get it. I'm going to get a little wine with my cheesecake. Mhm. I was like really waiting for it to be like they were headed to like a music festival or like and then it was like to the cheesecake factory. <laughs> Many people thought that the boys seemed too cold at their parents' memorial service, and others were still stuck wondering, if this was a mob hit, does that mean that Jose was secretly involved in organized crime? The boys were shocked to find out that they were, in fact, still the beneficiaries of their parents' estate, which came in between 8 and $14 million. Wow. Due to all of the speculation that this was a mob hit, Lyle Lyle hired bodyguards fearing for his own safety. Eventually, the bodyguards felt like Lyle didn't seem scared anymore. But by this point, he had formed a sort of father-like relationship with one of them. So I think they kind of stuck around. The boys went to stay with their aunt and uncle, Terry and Carlos Beralt, where police came to interview them. Here, they provide some more details of their evening. The boys had gone to see a movie and arrived around 8 p.m. They were originally planning to see License to Kill, but either the line was too long or it was sold out. Conflicting reports. So they decided instead to see Batman, which they got done with around 10.15. They were headed to Santa Monica when they stopped to get Eric's ID. This is really late to go to the Cheesecake Factory. I don't know what the, like... The Cheesecake Factory was just like... They got done with the movie at 10.15. Mm. Like, the Cheesecake Factory just ain't that popping, but maybe it was in 1989. I don't I know. I think... In 1989, I think it was the place to be, probably. It's new? Fresh? I don't know. Yeah. Lyle asked for more evidence that this was related to the mob, <clears throat> which prompted detectives to inquire about Lyle's bodyguards. He says that the boys were being... Lyle says that they were being followed, but he doesn't know by whom. So, like, of course, the police are like, wait, if you don't even believe it was a mob hit, then, like, why'd you hire those bodyguards? Mm-hmm. And then he's like, well, I don't really know what it was, but, like, I, did know, I do know that we were being followed. They described the bloody and smoky scene at their home, saying that it smelled like a car does when it's overheated. Eric said he's never smelled gun smoke before, but he thought that could be what that smell was. The police told the boys that there were no signs of a struggle. The boys went back eventually to live at their family mansion. Lyle met with an author to consider writing a book about their father's life. but the author, Robert Rand, was eventually directed to speak only to their lawyer and was told that the boys were receiving death threats. Now, Robert Rand's book is where I got most of my information, and i I'm obsessed. With Robert Rand, he actually started investigating these murders the day after they occurred. Oh. So Rand called the police to ask about these death threats that the boys were receiving, and they had no knowledge of them. People also began to notice how the boys' spending had increased exponentially. Lyle bought a new Porsche, and they each got new Rolex watches. They ended up spending between five hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars of their parents' money after their murders. In March of nineteen ninety, which like truth be told, like, they stole a hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff. Like maybe five and seven hundred thousand is like nothing to them. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and they're they're like Lisa Barlow. Yeah. Oh whatever. Petty cash. <laughs> In March of 1990, Lyle Menendez was arrested for the murders of his parents. At the time, Eric was in Israel at an international tennis tournament, but he got on a plane as soon as he heard. He came straight back to Los Angeles and went to the police station. Now, well, and was also arrested. He knew that there was a warrant out for his arrest, so whatever. I was like, is he going to just support Lyle? Like, is he turning himself (laughs) in? What's happening? He's turning himself in, but like, maintains his innocence, so I feel like turning himself in is, like, a weird phrase. Well, but I, did, like, I, just, I didn't know there was a warrant out. Yeah, yeah, he knew that they were both under arrest. He just wasn't mm-hmm. there. So, now we're gonna get into the Menendez family's hidden secrets, what actually happened the night of the murders, and then the trials. All in part one? No. Okay. Part two will pick up the trials okay throughout eric and lyle's childhoods their parents had been harsh their tennis coach would later describe jose as unlike any other parent that he knew saying that he wanted control over every aspect of his boys lives he also admits to feeling a sense of secrecy around the menendez family jose berated the boys calling them sissies and the f slur telling them that they needed to be more like him. Kitty, though, was emotionally unwell. After finding out about an eight-year-long affair between Jose and another woman, eight years, I would drive a lot of people, crazy. she, okay, after finding out about an eight-year-long affair between Jose and another woman, alcohol and Xanax were the only ways that she could cope. She wrote suicide letters harmed herself, and got very worked up frequently. In 1987, she had been hospitalized after an overdose. She was being prescribed Xanax three times daily, so she had access to a lot of it. That's a lot. Yeah, that's a a lot of Xanax. To be prescribed and then to know, like, you're probably taking more than is prescribed. She then threatened to poison herself and her family, Yeah, Jose was like, we're not eating for a while, (laughs) boys. We're good on that. Hunger strike. She made sure to tell her sons often that they had ruined her life, specifically her career and her relationship with her husband. When the boys were caught burglarizing homes in Calabasas in 1988, they were required to attend therapy. Dr. Ozeal was recommended to them by Kitty's psychiatrist, Strangely, though, Dr. Ozeal's specialty was in phobias, not in teenagers who burglarize. Yeah, not in, what's it called? Uh, What's it called when you, like, clinically steal? Oh, like kleptomania. Yeah. Yeah. Shortly after beginning treatment, Eric gave Dr. Ozeal permission to share everything from his sessions with his parents. Mm. Regrets. Yeah. I'm thinking. Cut that shit out. Yeah. Do no. You tell, you do not sign that HIPAA paperwork. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. Six weeks before the murders, Kitty told her own psychiatrist that she thought the boys were sociopaths and that she was holding in a lot of secrets about her family that were, quote, sick and embarrassing. Lyle, during that year, had returned to Princeton and got engaged to his girlfriend, Jamie. Uh, She then invited a friend, Donovan Goudreau, to move in with them. But when he began stealing from them, this started causing problems in Jamie and Lyle's relationship. She and Lyle broke up and she blames Donovan for this. But Donovan and Lyle would remain friends. And Donovan would say that Lyle had confided in him, that his father had cheated on his mother, and that it was making her crazy. According to him, Lyle once said... I could just kill him for the effect that he was having on his mother. But no part of Donovan took Lyle seriously. Because why would you? Right. And we talked about this, like, with, like, Stephanie Woselitian. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a difference in, like, threatening someone and being like, oh, my God, I'm going to kill them. Right. Like, dude, I could kill him for what he's doing to my mom. Like, it's different. Fine. In the days leading up to the murders, the boys report an increase in issues between themselves and their parents. They admitted to killing their parents, but they had some explaining to do. So we're going to go through the timeline, knowing that most of it comes from Eric and Lyle themselves. So keep that in mind. Offer any questions or rebuttals that you have, Mary. On August 15th, five days before... Lyle had a huge fight with his mother. In the heat of this fight, she reached over and ripped off his hairpiece, his toupee. Eric watched in shock because he had no idea that his brother wore a hairpiece. Lyle was hurt and embarrassed that he had been exposed, especially when it was his father who had insisted that he get a hairpiece in the first place. No. How fucking awful. In response to his brother's secret being exposed, Eric decided to share something with Lyle. He, what? <laughs> and they were like, it's really serious. And he's like, I'm sorry that you, that our dad made you wear a toupee. So here's my secret. And it's like a thousand times worse. Yeah, but I also think, like, in this family, like, that probably... The toupee, like, probably was, like, a huge deal. Yeah. Because, like, they didn't, like, admit to, like, any faults or, like, flaws. Yeah. And, like, the whole reason Jose probably wanted him to wear hairpieces so no one knew he was going bald. That explains... His, uh, his like, prison pictures, he's completely bald. Sorry, yeah. I may have given some, some things away. But you already said that they, they admitted it, so... Yes. Okay. Yeah. So he told him, you remember what dad used to do to us when we were younger? Lyle's like, yes. And Eric's like, it's still happening for me at the age of 18. Eric was admitting that their father had continued to sexually abuse him, even as he was about to head off to college. Lyle obviously knew exactly what he was talking about, because he had been abused by his father from ages six to eight and he knew that Eric was as well when they were younger. Eric was also telling Lyle that Jose was making him live at home since he was now going to be going to school nearby at UCLA. So Eric is scared. Mm -hmm. The next day, four days before the murders, Lyle went to their mother and asked Kitty for her support in moving Eric to Princeton to end the abuse. Kitty told him that she knew. She had always known, and she would not be helping him do that. Bitch, what the fuck? Instead, Kitty would go tell Jose that night what the boys were discussing and planning. Kitty, girl. I always thought she was kind of like an innocent victim in all of this. No. Oh, no. On August 17th, three days before... Lyle went to talk to his dad, who, thanks to Kitty, already knew this was coming. Lyle told him that he knew the abuse was still going on. Jose's response was, quote, what I do with my son is none of your business, end quote. Lyle replied, you are a sick person, and I will tell everyone about you. And Jose said, everyone makes choices. You've made yours, and Eric has made his. What in the literal fuck? It sounds like... What's Eric choosing? It sounds like you've made Eric's choice. Right. Eric's choice would be to go to Princeton, which is what they're asking you if he can do. The two boys said that they became terrified for their lives. They had now confronted their dad, telling him that they would expose him. And he had always made threats before about what would happen if they told anyone. He had told Eric that if he ever told anyone, he would kill Eric and everyone that he had told. They went out that day and the boys bought two shotguns using an ID that Donovan Goudreau had accidentally left with Lyle a few months before. <laughs> I will note just, just for funsies. I will note that there is a mandatory, there was a mandatory waiting period for handguns, but not for shotguns. So they bought those immediately. Yeah. No worries. Uh, on August 19th, the day before the murders, the parents wanted to go on a last-minute fishing session at night. The boys thought this was weird. But what they didn't realize was that the captain had actually recommended evening time for fishing. But they didn't know that, so they were like, what in the so fuck? So I wanted to get pushed in a lake yeah, and I don't, there. I don't like this. Um, great. And I think, I don't really know the details, but like, this is, like, California. I think they were going in the ocean, and it was, like, something about sharks. Like, I don't know if they were, like, shark fishing or, like, just mm-hmm. shark watching or, like, what. But, like, this is, like, the fucking ocean. Like, yeah, yeah, that's scary. They tried to avoid going, staying out until the time that their parents were planning to leave. But when they got home, their parents were still there, and they were ready to go. Come on, boys.
1: They said, so, we'll go as
0: late as we have to. Yeah. So they went and the captain will later say that he found it very strange that the boys sat nowhere near their parents and that no one talked the entire time. <laughs> the cap the poor captain. <laughs> he's like he's like like giving them recommendations he's like come at night like is this the best time to see the sharks and like bring your boys like they'll love it and then he's like why is nobody having a good time yeah like imagine i just like imagine these you know like the tour guides that are like and then look to your left and like no one's looking (laughs) they're just like staring at the ground. Yeah. When I went to Dustin a couple years ago, we went on a Tiki cruise, and there were dolphins. And the like cruise drivers were so excited. They were like, Yeah. <gasps> they like stopped the the Tiki boats. They were like, Everyone, look! They're so yeah. Exciting. That's this guy. Yeah. Well, not after it started. He said, Oh, that it's not going to be that kind of that kind of trip. Got it. Mm-hmm. When they got home, the boys left again. I don't know where they went, but they left. They said, oh, get us out of here. But when they returned later in the night, they were locked out. The doors had all been locked and I think they maybe just forgot a key, but I think I had read somewhere that like they weren't allowed to have a key. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not really sure on that. But their mother was pissed and she was screaming at them that she had been woken up to let them in. And then she did finally let them in, and they immediately just ran to their rooms and locked their doors. But Jose spent a good amount of time after this banging on and screaming through each of their locked doors. For why? I don't know. On August 20th, the day, someone called looking for Lyle. But he heard his dad tell them that Lyle would be out shopping all day. But Lyle was home. And was not going anywhere. So he was frightened. He said, (laughs) I'm what? Right here, Dad. I'm right here. Okay. Remember the door you were banging on that I still haven't opened? Yeah, I'm right here. So scared for my life. He took this as another sign that something was being planned. But Eric had been out that day. And he got back around 9.30 p.m. Like, these boys are seriously trying to stay away as long as possible they no, like, let me come back. Hopefully everyone's asleep.
1: And we can do without a key.
0: Yeah. <laughs> he, I would rather be outside. <laughs> he came back around 930. They claimed that they attempted to leave, but that Kitty and Jose physically blocked the exits. Finally, Jose instructed Eric to go into his room and to wait for him. Eric knew and dreaded what this meant. In one more attempt at defiance, Lyle screamed, you won't touch him anymore, and then looked at his mother and said, are you going to let this happen? And she replied, you ruined this family. The fuck I did? Kitty! Ah. Jose then took Kitty into a nearby room and locked the door. Once again, the boys thought, look, they're conspiring. Like yeah. This is scary. Lyle looked at Eric communicating with him that it was time. They had no other choice now. They ran outside and to the guest house to get their two shotguns. Obviously, there is like a little bit of debate. If if Jose and Kitty are in a locked room and you can run outside, you could just keep running. But Fair. fear is the real thing. And perhaps they needed a, a longer term solution. Yeah. And desperation. Yeah. They ran or they when they returned to the house, they went in firing after shooting their parents almost 20 times in total. They picked up the shells around the house and tried to come up with a plan to get rid of the shotguns. They attempted to go to the movies to get tickets for a screen time that would provide them an alibi, but they were unable. When they returned home, they parked on the street and entered the open gate, went inside and called 911. Lyle speaks to the dispatcher through sobs and you are able to hear Eric in the background distraught. Lyle tells them someone killed my parents and you can hear Lyle yell to Eric, Eric, get away from them. So like presumably Eric's like Mm -hmm. trying to help them or like at least touch them. So I think like, also there's so many, this was made into like multiple Hollywood movies where like, the boys are like shown like holding the phone and like being totally calm, but being like, "Ah!" and so like, I think that's people's perception. Um, But obviously like, we don't know, like we weren't there. Like I think the idea that they could have actually been sobbing is like very reasonable. Um, Despite the fact that they were the ones that did it. When the police arrived, they worried that the brothers were still in danger and that those who killed their parents could still be in the house. After clearing the home, they spoke to the boys about what they saw. The boys were not suspects, so the police did not perform gunshot residue testing on them or their clothing, which is not their, not the boys' fault, you know? <laughs> One investigator does say that he thought they may know more than they were letting on. The boys had described the smell of smoke when they first entered the home, but investigators found a broken window, which would make it difficult for a smell to linger. They also wondered if this were a mob hit, hit, would they have really picked up their shotgun shells? It sounds like, in hindsight, they had some suspicions, but not enough to run testing or bring the boys in for questioning. So, again, some regrets. On August 31st, 1989, the brothers had a computer expert come in to look through their parents' computer. It is said that Lyle asked the expert to search for a file using the keywords Eric, Lyle, Will. The expert later said he assumed all three were names. (sighs) And they told him to erase the file if he found it. Although the attorney, who is the executor of the Menendez's will, suspected that there was an updated will that did not include the boys, nothing was found when the computer hard drive was searched. So, that's suspicious. On August 31st of that same year, Eric had a therapy session with Dr. Oziel. He opened up about his suicidal ideation, but he felt that he couldn't fully explain it without telling him the full truth. They were taking a walk when Eric confessed to him that he and his brother had killed their parents. Dr. Ozeal was eagerly, Asking follow-up questions. He wanted the details. He wanted to know about the planning. He wanted to know about how it was executed. He was eating it up. He told Eric that they should call Lyle and get him right over there. At the time, Lyle was back together with his former fiance, Jamie, and they were at home passing out Halloween candy. But Eric called and told him, stop what you're doing and come down here, which is just sad. He just wanted to hand out some candy. What Lyle didn't know at the time was that when he walked into the waiting room and there was a woman sitting there waiting, she was actually Dr. Ozeal's former patient and now mistress, Judilon Smith. Lyle goes in, of course, upset that Eric would tell someone what they had done. <laughs> he was not pleased. He's like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> yeah. Dr. Ozeal, and later Judalon Smith as well, would say that Lyle threatened to kill Dr. Ozeal at that moment. Lyle and Eric both deny this. But again, like, maybe he was just like, I could kill that guy. <laughs> Although it wasn't Dr. Ozeal's fault, I guess. But Eric confessed. Dr. Ozeal developed a plan of action with his supervisor. He documented the boys' confessions and put them in safe deposit boxes, He would only tell one trusted person how to access them in the case that he was harmed suspiciously. He let the boys know about this plan, but that the information of the confessions would not be shared if he was not hurt. He said, listen here, (laughs) don't touch me. I will keep your secrets (laughs) if you stay the fuck away from me. Yeah, you leave me alone. After the confession, Judon Smith told Dr. Ozeal that she would complete suicide and tell people what she knew about the Menendez brothers. This is like in not in that because... order? <laughs> no. Um it's no. also like not because of the confession, like there was some 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 just love trouble going on. She just wanted she... to die. She's okay. just like, I'm going to tell everyone and I'm gonna kill myself. But also, like, I don't really get how this is, like, the worst thing that could happen to him. Yeah. That you tell people <laughs> the people that he is apparently afraid are gonna kill him. So, yeah, whatever. Dr. Oziel let her move into his home with his wife and children, possibly out of the kindness of his heart, or possibly to keep an eye on her. She's blackmailing him. Mm-hmm. Smith alleges that Ozeal threatened to have her committed and that he was physically and sexually abusive. I will not lie. All of the parts, which there's a lot, all of the parts about Judalon Smith and Dr. Ozeal are very convoluted because I think the truth is difficult to find amongst two people who are so scorned. It's like really just like a love drama thing a yeah. lot of the times. And it's, like, very real stuff, but it's also, like, what, what is going on? So, Dr. Ozeal broke up with Judalon Smith, but asked her to sign a, quote, reaffirmed confidentiality agreement. I don't know what that means. Like, so she had already signed a confidentiality yeah. agreement? Also, if she's the patient... Like, she doesn't have to sign, like, be, keep things confidential. I'm confused. Whatever. This would require her to keep any information that she knew about his patients confidential. She did sign, but claims that it was coerced and that she didn't know what she was signing. She notes, if you look, that her signature was barely more than a scribble. In fact, it was illegible. And she says that this was on purpose because she was not sure of what she was signing. So she wanted to be able to go back and say, See, I barely even signed it. What? Uh, That works. I don't understand what that means, Miss Girl. Although in March of 1990, she will describe that Dr. O'Zeal kicked her out of his home, she originally described that she had escaped him, her abuser. Early in 1990, Lyle started catching wind that police viewed him and his brother as strong suspects. On March 6th, 1990, Judalon Smith confirmed any hunches that they may have had, and she tells the police that she knows about the Jose and Kitty Menendez murders. In fact, that she had secretly recorded their confession from the waiting room. What? Also, like, the recordings, I think, that Dr. Ozeal had, supposedly, were, like, him saying these, this was confessed to me. Because like he didn't record it in the moment. He just like later was like they confessed this to me. This is the information they gave me. This is my proof. And then he told the boys like I'll release that. More like mm. my like whatever. My summary of it. But she just straight up has the recording of the confession. Like like, of, of the boys in there. Yeah. This led to a search warrant at the Ozeal home. They found the keys to his safe deposit boxes where they found 17 tapes related to the Menendez brothers. Two days after Smith met with investigators, Lyle was arrested in Eric's Jeep where he was with his friends. In June, after they were both in jail, a letter from Lyle to Eric while in prison was intercepted. It was a 17-page letter that included an escape plan, ways to enter Mexico, and then to get from Mexico to other countries. He said, quote, what we did in August was a mistake, and we know we did not do anything for the money, end quote. The boys continued to claim their innocence publicly while their defense developed their trial strategy, but their defense obviously knew that, like, so, like, earlier when I said they admitted it, like, that's just, like, getting ahead that, like, they had, I had to say that so that I can give you a timeline. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think, like, for those few months after being arrested, they were like, no, no, So they, the defense team had to just focus on the why. They did have a new psychiatrist, Dr. Vickery, join the defense team initially to assess the boys, but he remained throughout the trial. He described that Eric would sob at any mention of his family, even if it was just background information, like just talking about them. He just cried. He said that Eric would still describe in detail his parents' many accolades, and at times described them as heroes to him. Mm -hmm. Which is just sad. I don't know how long we've been recording, but that is the end of part one. So, that's where I'm going to end part one, and next week we'll be heading into the trial. Mary, what are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. Uh Uh-huh. Aerobics? Yeah, I think it's sad that these boys like had so much trouble in their lives that this was like the only way out and that even like after admitting it and like going to jail and like awaiting a trial they're like still trying to like get away from it I don't know there's like there's not justice for the crimes against them Mm -hmm. and so instead they're gonna spend the rest of their lives in jail probably for getting out the only way they could. And it's like a lot like Aaron Solomon. Like you have someone who they said, like, I'm going to tell people. And he was like, okay, mm-hmm. tell people, see what they do. See who they believe. Yeah, Who would you believe? Who would you believe? <laughs> um, <laughs> but like, yeah, I think it just, like, when you're talking about like them escaping and going to Mexico and stuff, like they just want like this to be, behind them, like, they're not, like, a threat to society. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess you've, like, answered, and obviously, like, you know this case a little bit, um, most people do, so, like, so far, you, you do believe that, like, this is sad for them, and that they were victims of abuse? Yeah, I mean, I don't really know that, that it's up to, de, up for debate in my mind. They are not the only people who have said that they were mm-hmm. abused by Jose Menendez. Like. Yeah. Don't take my part two away from me. Sorry. But, I'm just, I'm just saying like. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When you look up like Menendez brothers, like there is a third person that yes. gets brought up. Yeah. Well, it's just now. like, this was such a, like this, and this will come in the trial, but like, this coining of the phrase like the abuse excuse like comes from this trial and I think yeah there's obviously a question of like does it matter you know yeah. that like you still can't Yeah still am I people? saying that you can take a life but be- just because you're scared? No. But Ooh, I think the law says I think in general it's sad that someone thinks that that is their only option, even yeah. if you're saying it's not, yeah, they were put in a position to believe that there was no way out, yeah. Um, alrighty, so yeah, it's a little short episode, but uh, I didn't really want to make everyone saddle up for a two hour, so that's where we're gonna end, and we'll be back in a week for part two. And yeah.